Thank you for tuning in to Talking Day 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of the galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Toby Longworth, an incredible actor and comedian who voiced Lot Dodd and Gragra in The Phantom Menace. Mr. Longworth's stories and charm are incredible, and this interview is one of my favorites ever, so I hope you really enjoy it. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 129, Toby Longworth. I'd love to just kind of back all the way up and talk about your early childhood and your inspirations and what made you even want to get into comedy, get into acting, get into voice acting. Was it at a young age or what was the impetus? I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, because it wasn't very attentive at school. I wasn't a good student, I'd have to say, but I certainly perked up as soon as I got involved in school plays. And the first play I ever did was a play called 40 Years On, which is a Alan Bennett's play. I also went on to do another play called uh, The Happiest Days of Your Life. The, both these plays, bizarrely, are set at schools, and I did them at school. 40 Years On was done at my school, King Edwards in Bath, but the other one, Happiest Days of Your Life, was done at the Bath High School, uh, the girls' school, which is when I started realising becoming an actor was probably the best way to meet girls. And so me and my best friend at the time decided to do all the plays. After a while, he and I thought, well, we could probably make a living doing this. And we actually were up in Edinburgh. He'd gone to college to do a degree. He'd actually gone to college on a a stage management. We'd ended up going up to Edinburgh to do plays. And one of the plays that had gone up to Edinburgh had cancelled and left a space free. And we decided to do our utterly untried double act up in Edinburgh. Because at the time, you needed to, in order to be able to become an actor, you needed to join equity. And in order to join equity, you had to prove that you had worked, but you couldn't work unless you joined equity. I believe it's called Catch-22. So we actually managed to work a way of being stand-up comedians and thereby get sufficient contracts to show equity to prove that we did the job. So we went up to Edinburgh, did our double act. We Suddenly they, they phoned us up to say, what, what name should we put in the programme? And we went, oh. And on a spur of moments, we said Rubber Bishops because we were playing in a church and we think, all right, Rubber Bishops. And so we were, became the Rubber Bishops and my partner in the Rubber Bishops, I was going to say went on to become, but he was at the time and continued to be Bill Bailey. So Bill went off to do stand-up comedy and I thought, well, I only really did this to, to become an actor. So I'm going to bow out and do more acting. And I think he just wanted to become a dancer. He knew that someday a show called Strictly Come Dancing and he'd want to win it. So uh, I think that's what his plan was. Uh, It's always nice to see things mapped out that way. So yeah, so that was basically the situation. It was basically, so I didn't have to do any work and I had a better chance of getting girls. During that time, did you have uh, any experience with Star Wars? Did you watch Star Wars or was it kind of just like a a thing in, in your back window? Bill was my best friend, so we spent a lot of time together. We were massively into Star Wars, and we would spend an awful lot of time doing Yoda impersonations to each other. But it's a very strange thing, because I'm now um, 56, I think. You might be able to check that, but I am at the moment, I believe. And so the first Star Wars was absolutely right in the centre of my bailiwick, if kids are still saying bailiwick. But as time went on, when they got, when we got to the Ewoks... I was at the sort of age that found the Ewoks a little bit too much. So I sort of felt a little bit like, I think a lot of people, older people, when The Phantom Menace came out, they were all kind of rather carping about it. But I I always felt it was mainly because that's the age you are. It wasn't meant for me by the time it got around to the Ewoks. I was... As a teenager, and I was like, no, oh, fairy teddy bears, I don't like that at all. Looking back, they're very cute, and it's a perfectly lovely way of telling a story. But at the time, I was like, oh, no. 
So I was at that literally that middle middle age where the first few were very much up my alley, and the and then it started. I had to be too cool for school, so I had to say I wasn't as into it. I grew up with the Phantom Menace, right? I was the correct age, and it hit exactly correct. And I was Jar Jar Bings for Halloween that year. You have to kind of view it generationally, and I'd be interested, you know. So then you're going through your career, and maybe let's track a little bit of your early journey as a comedian or as an actor, as a radio personality, and then how you eventually got involved with episode one production. I got fed up with stand-up comedy mainly because you, you're you always traveling. You have to write everything you perform, which is fine, but there comes a point where you can just think, can I just read something out? It's pretty, it's pretty punishing. And so I was getting more and more into the idea of actually performing in play. So I did start doing a lot more fringe performances and a lot more stage performances i found it very fulfilling but i was also you know enjoyed doing impressions still because i mean i say I, I think i left school with perhaps you know the, the teachers i could do the teachers and i could do yoda it wasn't a very wide frame of, of ref. i mean i did i most of the people i used to do impressions of now I, I used to do rolf harris i used to do Stuart Hall, I used to do Jimmy Savile. And uh, you think, well, they're not not really the kinds of people you want to hear impressions of these days. My girlfriend was also an actress and uh, a comedian, and she decided that she was a bit fed up with that, and she wanted to go into radio production. And uh, she became producer of Radio 4. It's through her that I found out about the show Weekending. I went in, meet some people, and eventually ended up doing that for about five years. So I worked up my kind of impressions and started working up you know, radio voice kind of stuff. And it's actually after that, I went off to DRSC. So I kind of started developing my my, st- my stage career as well. But whilst performing at Radio 4, somebody or other, who, who knows who, from George Lucas's entourage, coterie, company, maybe even George himself, who knows, heard me on the radio in some capacity and called me in to do some auditioning. And of course, I wasn't the only one. There was Pete Serafinowitz and Lewis McLeod and a, a bunch of guys who regularly worked on Radio 4. I know that George has in the past said, what well, your best thing to do is to get English actors because they don't spend all time asking you what their motivation is. They just get on with it. I think he's kind of right about that, but he shouldn't say it out loud. But yeah, he's that is what happened. And so I think it was out of radio that he found me. Yeah, that's that's I think that's how I got hooked up into the into the Phantom Menace. Then your experience in the recording booth was Lucas present. Did you have direction? Were you told who your characters were? What was kind of that whole process? The story about that that's always been fascinating to me was that basically me, Peter Serafinowicz, Lewis McLeod, I think, and a few others, all they were sent us sort of kind of a list of things we could do. So we all went in to meet somebody to do some recordings of droid voices or alien boy, anything that we've ever stabbed at. And, and so we'd send them in. And so Lewis had heard back that he was going to do Darth Maul. Uh, not Lewis, uh, Pete had heard back he was going to do Darth Maul. Lewis was, was he Sebulba, I think? And Lewis, I think, had been, of all of us, he's the only one that went and did, had the dots on his face for facial capture because I think they were just drawing out that as an option. Andy Seacombe actually was on set uh, the whole time through it. Yes, very smart, and he got a tan out of it as well, which is quite good. But me and Pete were just, uh, we went, went to Abbey Road, and, and it was fantastic. But I hadn't heard anything at all about it. And Pete had gone and recorded his stuff, and I thought, wow, what a drag. And then much closer to development, he, I got the phone call from the Lucas people to say, oh, come on. You're in, you're, you're going to be locked on. And we also think there's another character you might be playing as well. So I was like, oh, fantastic. Wow, this is uh, surprisingly late in the day. And I'd already kind of 
decided to tell everybody and everybody wanted to do it anyway, all that kind of stuff. I mean, going to Abbey Road is is kind of a bit of a mind bridge, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, it's definitely overwhelming. And we were right at the top and uh, there was George Lucas and he was kind of like, I mean, you know, larger than life sounds a little bit like I'm saying he's fat. I meant really, he's like a, just a big presence in the room. And very, very different, very, very quiet, unassuming. And he kind of went, well, I'm perfectly happy with what you did. Because he'd sent me, I think I'd been sent a cassette of people from Thailand speaking Lot Dodds lines. Uh, it's very specifically Thai. And he said, if you can try and do something that's inspired by this. And I think, I don't know, but I think I was the first one to record. And so I think the other two Nemoidians were supposed to go somewhere in the in the area that I'd, I'd done. I'm not sure of the order there, but I think that's right. Uh, so we came and turned up and said, I've got this voice. And he went, yeah, yeah, okay, let's do that. You know, he was just like, oh, if you think that's a good idea, let's go for that then. I remember I was reading a book on uh, the physics of Star Trek. And I went, oh, I'm reading a book on the physics of Star, Star Wars. I mean, the other one. Uh, which was which was a bit embarrassing and he went well great because there is there's no physics in star wars which i thought was a good quote i was going to get a t-shirt with that on there's no physics in star wars but yeah he was very light on the direction he just would either say again or faster or okay do you want to do another one that kind of stuff Uh, it's quite very relaxing and relaxed and then i think i don't know in the second day maybe i think it was there two three days second day we did he said oh i've got this other one gragra do you want to Lock this one out. And he had a few kind of reference points for that. I don't know. I want to say Tagalog, but I'm not sure uh, for the actual language thing. But yeah, recorded that. Don't remember if I did any that we didn't use. I'm pretty sure I didn't. I think I just, I just, I did that three or four times. And <laughs> George would just kind of go, yeah, okay. And you're like, no, no, nothing particular. No. All right, one more or what? What do you want? Do you want another one? Uh, yeah, maybe another one. Oh, okay. And uh, I remember being really impressed because he had, the whole film, the, like the animat, the pre-effects sh- film, was on a laptop, and the idea of the power of having a laptop that would actually have a whole film on it was just overwhelming to me at the time. Well, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty overwhelming. It was like had to be really extraordinarily high end to do that. And seeing some of the effects in there early, they because they gave me a, a, D, a, v, a VHS of the scenes I was in with the kind of placeholder effects in. It was really interesting. I, and of course, I also gave me a, a thing saying if I ever wanted to try and hold, get hold of this, they would sue me to death. I gave that back. But um, wow, imagine if I'd have managed to get a copy of that. That would have been amazing. It did look, I mean, I heard the story about him going and showing everybody the unfinished New Hope with, you know, the first, Second World War dogfight film scenes. And it looked a lot like that. It did look a lot like, wow, is this, this is going to be, uh, oh, geez, <laughs> this is, looks pretty weird. But obviously, you know, it was very early days. And of course, the one thing about that that I've always remembered as we got closer and closer to the premiere, and I think I got an invitation to a, to a particular premiere. I don't know whether it was in the States. I don't know where it was. I think Pete Serafinowicz went. And I think he was already, he'd already gone to go. And I was like, oh, okay. And I got a phone call from the Lucas people. And it said, she said, uh, oh, George has forgotten to do one scene with you. And I'm like, well, it's, I think the premiere is like in a couple of days, isn't it? And anyway, can you, is there any chance you can? And then we got up to a house in, in Hampsh, uh, Hammersmith, I think. Hampstead, Hampstead Heath, uh, up near Hampstead Heath. And it's a private house. And they had a recording studio. It turned up in this little booth in their house. And they were just like a family. And I walked through and they had a studio downstairs. 
George is on the phone going, oh, hi, I'm sorry, I forgot. It's not a long scene, but I forgot. And uh, so I recorded that. And he went, thanks. Uh, it's wander back from this weird house in the middle of nowhere. The then reaction to Phantom Menace is very interesting. Peter, I think it was on Spaced, maybe? Like, there was there was kind of an element to it all, you know? And so, again, I think the... But Simon Pegg hated it. And he, he wasn't shy about telling everybody on Spaced, of course. And Peter playing his lines, the, the actual lines that he had in the film. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it took a long people to realise it's not really meant for them. It wasn't really meant for people who'd been living you know, all this time desperate for a sequel, to make it for them would be to sort of, to let down the children, really, for, you know, younger people who, who for whom it really was meant to be. You know? Although there was a lot of very complicated trade agreement material that I think... Uh, Yes. Oh, you know, it was important for me as a seven-year-old to really kind of grasp politics and, and, <laughs> yeah. and negotiation. You never know how much you might have to be doing EU law later in life. Anyway, it's it's very fun to watch it now. It's so complex, the amount of voices and characters and things that are introduced that are so unique, and you are a part of that landscape. And so, uh, you know, what are we, 30 years on, 20 years on? And so um, it's yeah. really, yeah. It's amazing. It was an incredible privilege at the time. I remember just being, like, not believing it could possibly be that this is something that actually was going to happen. It's kind of overwhelming to be part of that. And it, it, it was, I have to say, a little disappointing with the, the treatment or at least the, rece the reception it received. But I'm quite, I've got, I seem to have a very good track record in getting involved in projects that receive huge kind of public drubbing. And <laughs> I don't know what it is. I seem to pick uh, projects that people seem to like hating very much. A few years ago, I did a sitcom called The Right Way for BBC One. Well, you know, perfectly, I thought, perfectly harmless Ben Elton sitcom, but it was considered the Guardian put an article on its front. The Guardian put an article on its front page saying, "Is this the worst sitcom ever?" Never seen such vitriolic reception. And I know that Ben thought it was like personally targeted, but I think his the successful reception of his latest series about Shakespeare just demonstrates just people specifically hated that show. It wasn't anything to do with Ben Elton. It was. So I'm quite used to people just, if I get involved in anything, well, either they, uh, if it's the second series or something, you think, yeah, that'll be the last series, or it's, I don't know what it is. It's some, I have a, have a magnet for terrible projects. Well, projects that get received badly. Your projects that are drawing to me, especially, are like the Big Finish or the Games Workshop. That kind of stuff is very cool and very interesting. I'd love to delve into that a little bit and move away from Star Wars. But what has your experience been in that world? When I do say that, I mean, obviously, I'm being facetious. At my, at my lowest ebbs, you do look around and go, oh, bloody hell, why does another one of these things come out there? <laughs> I think there's a couple of series I've done where you go, oh, this is good. And then they go, this will be the last series. Of, oh, God, I'm just enjoying this. Um, I think big finish, again, you see, that's the thing that I absolutely adored doing and haven't done for a while. And I, I'm, maybe I over, overdid it. I mean, I've done too many and they're like, well, can we do some without him in? I've really, I really enjoyed it. I mean, one of the things I would say is most people who do Big Finish will mention that Toby Robinson, who does the food, uh, who does all the recording, of course, but he's, the lunches he put on uh, puts on are so delightful. He gets so annoyed that people bring it up all the time, but they are fantastic. And I mean, just to be involved in Doctor Who was was tremendous because obviously I I spent my entire childhood just loving Doctor Who, and to be able to become part of it was just overwhelming and that i think came through being on radio 4 as well i don't i think i don't really 
other actors often ask me how you get involved and I often have to say I, I don't remember I know that I wasn't doing and then I was and then that's all I remember but yeah really really enjoyed those and I mean that through those I've got involved with Games Workshop and the Warhammer uh, series which really enjoying I'm doing Gaunt Ghost at the moment which is a I do the audio books for them and their computer games the audio books I think I've got one called Traitor General is coming out I think quite soon and that's got a very loyal following and I have to say all the for all of these these science fiction because I did Elite as well the Elite uh, audiobooks Elite Reclamation there's no following like a science fiction fan following they are really really loyal and engaged and that's I think as my career has developed I seem to have become involved with a lot of those like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is of course something that I absolutely loved as a child growing up and to be then in it. I mean, I never even considered the possibility of, of becoming a part of that. There's one that I want to mention. I like have felt in love with the Sandman. Talk about production quality and just like the amount of caliber. I'd be interested. Do you have any like stories from working on that? Because that that whole thing is is awesome. That, of course, is absolutely down to Dirk Maggs. Dirk Maggs is a powerhouse in uh, radio drama. He, of course, in fact, is, I first met him doing Weekending on on Radio 4, and we did a, a fair few programs together on Radio 4. And then it, it was he who directed the Hitchhiker's Guide and the Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Uh, and we've done all kinds of strange shows. When we were doing the, the Hitchhiker's Guide, we did it on tour. We did a, a live version on tour with different people playing the book, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide book. And Neil Gaiman came and played the book. And I don't know whether that's where that started, but he got kind of close to Dirk and they seem to be two kindred spirits. The combination of the two of them is fantastic. We do that out at um, the Audible Studios in Barbican, or we were doing it out there in Barbican. I think we've since moved out to do it in Soundhouse up in North London. In fact, I think the reason we did that is awful lot of people in the Sandman. And a lot of the scenes, Dirk's tried to get as many of the people in there at the same time as he possibly can, just because he directs radio in such a way that it's almost like a film without pictures or at least that's the it, it has a real cinematic quality to it and he does one of the ways of doing that is making sure that everyone's really acting with each other but some of the studio space at audible is a little small for that kind of thing so Dirk was very keen to demonstrate this to the powers of b at audible so there was one day where he decided to get absolutely everybody in into the very small studio to demonstrate to the powers that be that this was not practical. Um, whereas we we're all were perfectly willing to support Dirk in this. It actually started to be a bit like the black hole of Calcutta and we were age of passing out. It was just, I'm quite glad to make the point for you. Dirk, I'm starting to black out. It was really good fun. And he makes the whole, the whole thing is delightful. It's a delightful experience to be involved with anything that, that Dirk produces. And Sandman is no exception. And it is really strange when you have so much fun doing a thing and when you start to look back at just how gruesome a lot of the Sandman is more so when it becomes real people saying these things I mean I think when you've got a if you've got it as a as a graphic novel it's it's pretty gruesome but then when it's real people being kind of tortured or whatever it's you kind of go oh my god and it's, so it's somehow it's one of the most extraordinary things when you have had such good fun they always say on stage tragedies are, are the most fun to do because everyone just has to relax backstage because it's so grim on stage. I remember doing Hamlet at the RSC. I was playing Osric, but nevertheless, you know, it was a lot of fun backstage because all the grims on stage. But as soon as you start doing comedies on stage, backstage is so concentrated 
because you can't make any mistakes in comedy. Comedy is a lot harder. Although there is a lot of comedy in Hitchhikers, there's much less in Sandman, but you know, the grimness of it makes it all the more fun. I've had Sandman like in my life for so long and it's, it's, it's been so weird, like not having an adaptation. I guess there'll be a TV show at some point this year, next year. Yeah, I, I think so. Do you find that, do you, do you ever feel that your expectations, you know, you kind of go, oh, I wasn't, I was hoping such and such, you know, that it would be different. Did I often wonder about this? Cause I mean, for a lot of people, Hitchhiker's Guide on the radio was their first experience of it. And a lot of people were disappointed by the television version because they'd already got pictures in their minds. And I've often wondered when, People, you know, are familiar with a thing and then they see an adaptation. I've often felt that Dirk's grasp is so strong that he tends to just give people exactly what they saw in, in their mind's eye or, or heard in their mind's ear. That's a term. With Sandman, it is kind of the perfect way to adapt that comic just because I have very high expectations. Or I'll, I'm sure I'll enjoy the, the show. But you do, like you mentioned, have have something pictured. But Hitchhiker, like I read that. And you don't have pictures because it's a it's a book. It's not necessarily a graphic novel. And so when I heard all the the radio plays and, and heard the radio dramas, like that works obviously very well. But then with Sandman, you're able to kind of really plug in that like a vibrant art directly into the into the voices and 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 also the soundscape that that's created in there. And so uh, it really is highly effective. Yeah, that's it for you. And he actually gives us the actual relevant section from the the original comic book on the script so you got a real sense of the of the set and setting which is good i don't want to talk you off too much more i'd love to hear about upcoming projects or the longworth audiobooks how can people find you what are you working on got a growing fund of little uh, audiobooks i've recorded for my own pleasure on my website www.longworth.com and um, those are all available for download i really was trying to do as many of the kinds of things i'm known for doing are Things like Warhammer, uh, science fiction in a kind of grand scale and um, and sort of gothic scale. So I decided to record a load of kind of gothic novels like Casa Vatranto, which if, if you haven't read it or heard it, I mean, I, I am trying to sell my book, but nevertheless, do do get my my uh, my version of it. It's an incredibly difficult book to, to make sense of, but it's the first of those gothic novels, really. And it is mental. Can't really explain, except that uh, a young couple's wedding day is ruined when the uh, groom is crushed by a gigantic metal helmet. The fun continues from there on in. Uh, so I've got those those available if uh, people are interested on my on my, my website. Um, I've got a, I'm doing a series for radio, a BBC one, a BBC TV one called Ghosts, and I think it's the fourth series of Ghosts. I'm coming up just to kind of lend my peculiar face to the uh, to the proceeding. So. That would be quite interesting to be able to see me being bizarre, but not actually necessarily hear me in that one. And I've got, I've actually written a screenplay, which slowly but surely kicking into life now called, well, it's called A Selection of Different Things. But I think the most exciting title I've managed to come up with so far is The Night Has a Million Screaming Eyes, which is also aka The Monster That Ate Television. It's right. It doesn't give too much away that that title, but you'll you'll find out hopefully further down the line what it's like. A bunch of peculiar books coming out quite soon. I did a just did an audio book of, of about the year nineteen twenty two, which is exactly a hundred years ago, and worth having a listen to. I continue to work in audio, work in on screen. I haven't done any theatre for a little while, but then nobody has. So. Uh, <laughs> right, I was about to say I don't think I don't think that's uh, indicative of uh, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really interesting because I I actually 
just before the lockdown. I mean, and not related. I didn't. I didn't deliberately spread the. Uh, it was it, well, I, it wasn't my fault. I never did anything. But I just put a studio in my house just before the lockdown happened. So I've just been sat in there recording stuff, really, to most of the um, lockdown. So and it's an ill wind, isn't it? Mr. Longworth, thank you for your time. Uh, this was such a great conversation, and thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Brandon. Thank you so much again to Mr. Longworth for his stories and generosity. For more information about his work, as well as to download the audiobooks we discussed in the show, head to tobylongworth.com. But that's all for this week. Coming up next week is my interview with the sculptor Darth Vader, the legendary Brian Muir. If right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means a lot and really helps me out. So until next week, stay tuned. Leave that five-star review and may the Force be with you.